Amen. Take your Bibles this morning and open to Exodus chapter 3. We're going to be looking there at God's Word together. I don't know if you know this or not, but I have accomplished a great milestone in the life of a grandfather this week. Because at 3 o'clock on Thursday, I dropped my daughter and the five-month-old and my wife off at the airport. And I was left with the three-year-old. Her dad's in graduate school, so he was going to be out all night. So I put her to bed and got her up. And I'm just going to leave out everything that happened in between that. Because I had her till 4 o'clock on that Friday. It is good to be in the house of the Lord today. I'm just, I'm just saying. I, it, is, it is a great, a great day. So we both survived. And um, uh, I... Uh, I, I did Chuck E. Cheese. I did the uh, the fish, uh, uh, the aquarium. I mean, I did. I pulled everything I had out to try to keep her entertained. So we we made it. And so uh, some of you guys know how that is for the first time to be left alone with a grandchild. I'd forgotten how much um, I was going to say fun, but I, I it, it it was fun thinking about it coming up. It, it's just now. It's just survival, survival. Well, in our passage this morning, we're going to be looking at the Hebrew children. And they, they have been surviving for a long time. And that's about all that they, they could really say about what their existence was up to that moment. They had been under the oppression of the Egyptians. They had had all kinds of, of, of situations that had brought more and more hardship upon them. Their cries out to God seemed to go unanswered because they saw no relief. In fact, for a long time, they had been crying and asking God to deliver them from the oppression of the, of the Egyptians. But from the vantage point that they had, God was not hearing their prayer. Because the situation got worse, not better. But what they didn't understand at that moment, and we have the opportunity to glean from having the scripture in our hand, is that while they were crying out and the situation got worse, for 40, 80 years, God, God was preparing a way of deliverance for them. And while they couldn't see it coming, and while they didn't see the situation improving, God was at work. I think it's important for us as a baseline to know this, that God is at work in our world today. We can look around and see the situations and the circumstances of living today, and we can say to ourselves, because we hear it all the time, it is getting worse, it is getting worse. Is God even listening to our prayers? Is the world getting worse and worse and worse? And God is just sitting there doing nothing, apparently, to bring about an answer to the needs of our world. But when we say that, we have to realize God has already worked. God worked on the cross. And that work on the cross was to meet the needs of all mankind. And that need was met in Jesus Christ. And you and I were left here to show others the way of deliverance. We spend a lot of our time and our energy as Christian people doing a lot of good things. We are involved in our communities, and we should be. And we're involved in politics, and we probably should be. But I am going to tell you this. None of the other activities that we are involved in have the ability 
to bring about the change that we're praying for. It's only the gospel of Jesus Christ that can change our world. And so we have to, we have to know that God left a plan in place, and that plan was for you and me as followers of Jesus Christ to show the way of deliverance to those who had not yet come to faith in Him. Because sinners are going to sin. Amen? We, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't blame them for sinning. We are among them. <laughs> we understand sinners sin. But we also know that a Savior delivers. And we ought to be telling that story. So when we're looking at Exodus, we know that, that God is at work, even when we don't see Him at work. We know that, that God is putting His people to the task of showing the way of deliverance, and we are to, on a journey to the promise that God has made us. We look at that as heaven. The Hebrews, the Israelites here, are looking at that as the promised land. But in both situations, I want you to, I want you to remember, and I think it's foundational for our faith, is that the place is not the promise. Heaven is not the promise of God. The, the, the promised land was not the promise. The promise was his presence in the land. And what we're looking forward to in heaven is not our destination, the location that we will be, but it is in the fullness of the relationship that we will have with God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We will see him face to face, and we will be in the presence of God. By the way, when we're asked, where is heaven? It doesn't matter the location, does it? Because what really matters is, is that God is there. And we will know him in the fullness of his glory. Man, I, listen, that's, that's what this is all about. And this Old Testament story is, is giving us a little bit of a look at what is to come. And so here we find Moses. Now Moses launched out on his own and he struck the Hebrew and he had to run away and he's been out tending the mountains and then all of a sudden God showed up in that fiery bush and, and now God is speaking with Moses. Look with me in verse 8. Let's go back. Let's start in verse 7 of chapter 3 and listen to what the word of the Lord says. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. And I know about their sufferings. I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from the land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezzarites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The Israelites' cry for help has come to me, and I have also seen the way the Egyptians are opposing them. Therefore, go, I am sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Now, I want you to understand, that command to Moses to go... That's, a, that's the same kind of command that you and I got in the Great Commission. To go ye therefore and to what? To preach, to teach, to, to, to win the world 
to Jesus because God came in the person of the Son because He saw the oppression of our oppressor. He saw what havoc our adversary was reaping upon mankind. And so He came down from glory. He lived a perfect life. He, is, he went up on that cross. He died. He rose. And now He ever makes intercession for us next to the Father. I don't know why God has chosen to do it this way, but, but He has. I think God would, <laughs> it's a whole lot easier, I imagine, for God to do his work on his own than to involve us. Don't, don't, listen, have you ever tried to lead people? Man, it's tough. Have you ever tried to be led? <laughs> That's tougher. I mean, listen, it's tough. And, and yet God lets us in on his work. Why, why is he doing that? Because he wants us to have a part of the joy that comes when a lost sinner is redeemed and brought into the presence, the glorious presence of a holy... It's an amazing thing. And why does he do it? Because we're joint heirs. Joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And so here he says, Moses, this is what I want you to do. Now we know Moses had already tried and he failed. So, I used to be real hard on Moses in my younger days. In my, in my younger days. You know what I mean? I mean, when, you know, when I, when I was right out of college and seminary, and I knew everything. Gosh, it's so amazing how much I've forgotten since those days. But when I knew everything, I thought, man, Moses, how could you do this? But now I, I realize after living life a little while... When you've tried to do something and you failed, when somebody asks you to do the same thing, you want to say, hey, uh, look, I'm probably not your guy. Uh, there, there's probably somebody else that can do this. Because I know, I, I've already, I gave it my best. And my best didn't accomplish it. So, so I think Moses has that in the background, and he, and he makes some excuses. We're going, to look at, we're going to look at three of them today, and we'll look next week at, at a couple more and, and finish out this series Moses is looking at this, and he says, when God says uh, to him to go, Moses says to, to God, uh, but in verse 11, but Moses asked God, who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh, and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I? And, and he said, and, and the Lord answered, I will certainly be with you, and this will be a sign to you that I have sent you when you bring the people out of Egypt. You will all worship God at this mountain. And so Moses is looking at God, and God says, I want you to go. And Moses says, whoa, wait, who am I? Well, I, I'm just tending sheep back here on this mountain. There's got to be somebody in town. That, that can do this, right? I mean, you've got to have some, some holy man somewhere. You've got to have some priest or prophet or, or somebody out there that, that is more spiritual than me, somebody that has got more education uh, of, of theology than I have, somebody who has a position, uh, a position that would be understood and accepted and acknowledged. There's got to be somebody. Who am I? I I'm just a shepherd. 
Mo- Moses is, is looking at this and he's, he's, he's confused about why God would want him to do this. Who am I that I should go? Now, I wish that Moses was the last person to ever ask that question. As a pastor, I have had that repeated to me time after time after time. As I've asked somebody to serve on a committee, or I've asked somebody to serve as a teacher, or I've asked somebody to go with me on visitation, I've, I, I get that same kind of, of answer. Or, I, or better yet, when I ask somebody to go on their own and make a visit, or go on their own and teach a class, they'll, they'll look at me and they'll go, Oh, no, preacher, you got the wrong guy here. I, I, I'm... I, I'm Look, I, I haven't done what you've done. I, get, the, get the music minister to go. You can control him. <laughs> he didn't even look up. He, you know why? He knows that was ridiculous. So if, get, get the youth minister. Get somebody to go for you. But not me. Who am I? I don't... I, I don't I don't have a degree. I don't, I don't have a position. I, I'm not a deacon. I'm not a leader. I'm, who am I? Now, now, when Moses asked this question, he had selective memory. Men are experts at that. Selective memory. He, he had forgotten that he should be dead. He had forgotten that when he was born, that there was an edict that he should die. But somehow, God spared his life and put him in those reeds so that Pharaoh's daughter would find him. His sister would say that his mother was there to nurse him and that he would grow in Pharaoh. How many men did Moses know that were Israelites that were his same age? How many Israelites got to go into Pharaoh's house and live like a child of the king? How many of them got to go to the best schools, wear the best clothes, eat the finest foods? These these Hebrew slaves, there was no other Hebrew who had ever had the blessing that Moses had. And he's saying, who am I that I should go? There was no one that had been blessed more than Moses among the Hebrews. He was, after all, raised like a child of the Pharaoh. People will say today, who am I that I should go? I want to remind you who you are. You are a child of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You have been blessed to live in a time in which the gospel came to you and you heard the gospel, whether it was through a friend or through a message, you heard the gospel, you received Christ into your life, and now you have been brought in as a joint heir with Jesus Christ. You're a child of the King. Who are we that we should go? We are God's children. So so regardless of all of the other circumstances that we might present to God as reasons why we're not capable of going or not shouldn't be responsible for going, God reminds us that he has given us everything we need to accomplish the work that he is calling us to. Now, I also want you to remember 
that just because he's given you everything you need to accomplish the work that, he, that you have been called to, you don't have the strength or the ability at any level, at any time, to do the work of God in your own strength. It is the power of God moving through you. So when we say, who am I that I should go, we, we ought to just stop right there and say, I am nothing, but you are everything. And you have the ability to hold me in your hand and to guide me like a tool to do your work. That's what, that's what Moses should have understood. But, but when God answered him, then Moses says, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, uh, Moses says, ask God now. God, God speaks to him and, and I, I, God, I don't know. He, he just hears the question. And God says in verse 12, I will certainly be with you, and this will be a sign to you that I have sent you. You will bring the people out of Egypt, and you will all worship on this mountain. Then Moses said, okay, now listen. Let's suppose that happened. If I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers hath sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I tell them? And God replied to Moses, I am who I am. That is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me unto you. God says in Moses, say this to the Israelites. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to remain and be remembered in every generation. So he says, wait. Okay, who am I that I should go? And then he says, wait a second. Okay, okay, so if this worked, who shall I say sent me? Now, in other words, Moses is asking the question at this time, by what authority am I going to do this? What happened when he killed the Egyptian? Two Hebrews said, now what are you going to do, kill us? Are you, are you going to rule over us like, 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 they, like they do? They, he was rejected already. Moses is asking a legitimate question. By what authority do I go? Who am I that I should go? Who shall I say sent me? I think it's important for us to know that we go in the name of of the Lord. The name of the Lord. We go in the authority of the Lord God. When I was pastoring in, in Weatherford, Oklahoma, I was, uh, I was pastoring church and I had an evangelist come. If I called his name, everyone in the room would know him. And he came and he preached for about a week with me. And I, I so wanted him, I so wanted him to tell me that I was doing a good job. I really did. I, I, I didn't grow up in a pastor's home. My, my parents came to faith late, later. I, I, they, we didn't have any preachers. We, we and one other family uh, were the only ones that were in church. And so I just wanted this man to give me some affirmation. Okay, don't look at me like you had never needed some. I just wanted that. And he gave me nothing. Until we were driving back to Oklahoma City and we were pulling into the airport 
And when I pulled up that ramp to get ready to drop him off at Delta, he said this. He said, hey, Alan, can I tell you something real quick? And I thought, oh, yes, this is my moment. This is what I have been waiting for. Yes, sir. And he said, hey, you know that neighborhood out there where they're building all those new houses? I said, yes, sir. He said, well, listen, I'm going to tell you something that's going to help you in your ministry. And I said, oh, God has heard my prayer. And he said, he said, this is what I want you to do. You know that suit you had on Sunday morning? I said, yes, sir. He said, take it to the cleaners and have it cleaned. I said, okay. He said, you need to buy yourself a nice pinpoint Oxford shirt and have it pressed at the cleaner also. And I saw at the barber shop that there was a guy that would buff shoes and you need to go and have your shoes professionally done. And then you need to put that on and you need to go and knock on every door in that neighborhood and, and encourage those people to come to your church. Because you will never be able to do what you want to do in your church unless you get some of those money people in your church. I said, thank you. I th that's a good, a good word. Yeah, thanks. I helped him out of the car. And before I got off that ramp, you've, you've been to Oklahoma City Airport. Before I got off that ramp, I had to pull over and I just began to bawl. I wish I could say I just cried, but I bawled. And this is what I said. I said, dear God, if that's what it takes to be a big church pastor, I don't want any part of it. Because as you are my witness, I will never knock on a door in my community thinking that the people on the inside had more to offer than what you had to offer to them. Because when I go knock on that door, I don't care what the socioeconomic appearances are behind that door. I don't know the reality that's behind that door, do I? I don't know if that husband and wife are on the edge of divorce. I don't know if they're abusive to each other or to their children. Because I'm going to tell you, a lot of that happens in some of those really nice homes, not always in those dark little sleazy shacks, right? You see, when I knock on that door, I don't know what's on the other side, but I know this. I know that who I'm standing there with has the power to fix what's ever on the other side. That's why God said, tell them I am. You know what that means? It means I am able Whatever is going on in your life, whatever's going on in your world, whatever's going on in your home, Jesus is able to overcome it. And when we knock on that door, I don't fear what's on the other side. 
I'm not intimidated by what's on the other side because I'm standing there with the Lord Jesus Christ and He's able. And we ought not hesitate to go in His name. And then He says, well, wait. Let's suppose I go. Chapter 4. What... what well, let's suppose I go. Then Moses said, What if they won't believe me and will not obey me, but say, The Lord did not appear to you? The Lord asked him, What is in your hand? He said, A staff. He replied. Then he said, Throw it on the ground. He threw it on the ground and it became a snake. Moses ran from it. And then he told him to snatch it with your hand and to grab it by the tail. And so he did. And it became a rod again. So, so I want you to picture this. Moses is standing there with this staff. Now, you and I know this. That staff is not just some stick that he's picked up while he was tending the sheep. Archaeologists will tell us that the rod of the shepherd was his most valuable possession. Because that rod was oftentimes his only weapon. It also was the guiding stick when he was walking that he would guide, gently tap and guide the sheep with to move them in the right direction. It would be the crook that would be able to grab and pull back and pull up something that had fallen into a crevice. It, it, it had all kinds of utility uses for the shepherd. He could survive with just about anything that he had. But if he lost the staff, he would immediately have to replace it. So that piece of wood was something that he treasured. And it wasn't just a stick. Think about it. We, we, we have cattle. We had cattle. My, dad, my dad's passed, and I haven't got any cattle since, but we've had cattle all my life. Have you ever loaded a cow that didn't want to go where you wanted it to go? You ever try that for a little while, and all of a sudden you get a little bit upset with that cow? And so you just reach down, and you grab a little bit of persuasion, whatever stick you can find, and you take that, and you whack that cow upside the head, and that cow gets an attitude adjustment. And that cow turns and goes where you want it to go. And sometimes I've picked up a piece of rotten wood and I've smacked that cow and that wood exploded. It's a cow. It doesn't matter. I pick up another stick. But let's suppose that I was trying to wrangle a bear and I picked up a stick and I hit the bear in the head and the stick exploded. Now I'm in a little bit more trouble, right? If I know I'm going to have to use that stick to fight off lions and tigers and bears, oh no, well, I'm going to use a stick that I know when I whack that thing, that stick is going to be capable of whacking again, right? I mean, it's a very important stick. But then, not only that, this stick would have his life. You know, I don't know if you know this, but on Mount Herb, they, they don't have good internet reception. And so you couldn't get any streaming movies or anything up there. And so all he had was his stick and his sheep. 
and sheep, after you've been with them all day, they don't have a lot to do at night. They, they sleep. And so he was stuck there with his stick. And what archaeologists tell us, they, they would carve their life story on that stick. That's why when a shepherd would be buried, he'd be buried with a staff because his staff was his story. And God says, what's the most valuable thing you have? What's that in your hand? What are you holding on to? This is my staff. He said, throw it down. Now, that thing that was so valuable, that thing that was so precious, that thing that was so important, that thing that was his provider, his, his protection, he throws it down, and now it is a poisonous snake. And God says, okay, now pick it up. Now, I don't know why there's no more questions here. Because if I was Moses, this is where I start to say things to God. Like, you wanted it. It's yours. Keep it. I'll find another one. God says, pick it up. So Moses, can you see? He's sitting there looking at that snake, hissing and turning. When he turns, he's trying to get behind it. And, and right at the moment that I, I can just envision this, right at the moment where he thinks he can just reach down, snip, <coughs> snatch that thing behind its jaws, God says, by the tail. Whoa, wait, whoa. Now, Lord, look, I know you understand I don't have Discovery Channel out here, but up there you have to know that's not how you wrangle a snake. You, you don't grab it by the tail. I mean, I, I know, you surely know this because the tail can't hurt you. You grab it, you grab it behind the jaws. You want, you want to control the head. God said, grab it by the tail. So you know what Moses had to do at that moment? He had to reach down by faith and in obedience grab that which he didn't quite fully understand by the tail, believing God's word. He grabbed it, and it became the rod again. It looked just like the rod he had thrown down. It had all the same markings. It had the same weight. Everything about it looked exactly and felt exactly like it did when he threw it down. But it wasn't the same rod. The Bible will tell us in verse 7 that, that it's the rod of God, and with that you will do signs and miracles. That rod would be held up and armies would, the enemy would be defeated. That rod would strike a rock and water would come out. Of a mountain. That rod was no longer Moses' rod. That rod was the rod of God. And what I want us to understand is this Moses took what he was holding on to as his most valuable thing. It's his personality, it's his identity, and he throws it down. And when he throws it down, he sees it for what it really is. It's what's it's a threat to him. It's not, it's not, he's holding on to something that that isn't nearly as good for him as he thought it was. But when he gives it to God, and when he by faith 
lets God take control and he becomes obedient to the faith walk of God, he takes that back up. Looking the same, feeling the same, the whole nine yards. But now it's the rod of God. I want you to understand this. When we in faith are asked by God to throw our lives at his altar, our all, everything we are, everything we have, when we lay that at the altar and we lay our life before the cross of Calvary, you know what we see? We see our sin that was killing us, destroying us. We, we, we begin to see ourselves as we really are, not what we have imagined ourselves to be. And we lay it at the cross, and we lay it at the feet of, cross, of the cross, and all of a sudden, we see the sin that is so prevalent, and we are broken over it. But God doesn't leave us there in that brokenness. He tells us to, by faith, stand up and walk with me in faith. And when we go to the Calvary's cross for our salvation, we repent of our sin, and we believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're raised to a new life in Him. Do you know what that says to us? We look the same. We weigh the same, unfortunately. We, we, we feel the same. But we're no longer the same because we're no longer our own. But we are now the children of God. And you know what God will do with us? He will do amazing, exceedingly more than you could ever imagine. He will use you to do what is miraculous. And that is when you take the message of Christ to a lost world, sinners will be saved. He'll do what you can't do or could never do on your own. Jesus will make it right. And so, real quick, let me just tell you a story. I was preaching my first revival in Hevener, Oklahoma. Well, I say Hevener because I want you to think I've been to metropolitan places in our state. My first revival was in Hodgins. And I say Hodgins because I have some dignity. But actually, my first revival was at Hall Creek Baptist Church. Outside of Hevener, outside of Hodges, outside of the world that I had ever known. It's down in the southeast corner of, the, of Oklahoma. And when you leave Hodgins, you are off the grid. That's where people who go off the grid go. And I'm preaching. Listen, I preached there about a year ago. They still have a hitching post to this very day because there are people out there that live that can't imagine firing up a gas vehicle to just go a mile to church. So they ride their mules and their donkey, their mule, excuse me, their mules and their horses to church and hitch it up out front. It still exists in Oklahoma. We are a dignified bunch of people. And so, I'm out there preaching. And man, I'm just preaching up a storm. And the preacher says to me, he said, Hey, Alan, at lunch after that, that for, listen, I'm going to tell you, 
I preached probably the best sermon I've ever preached in my life, Brother John. I know it was. The reason I know it was is because I heard Adrian Rogers do it at my church the week before. And I wrote every word down. I even wrote the gestures, how he moved his hands. So I'm telling you, it's the best sermon I've ever preached. But the problem was, the preacher told me, he said, are all your sermons by Adrian Rogers? I about had a heart attack. Because Adrian had been to Revival the week before, and that's what my sermon preparation was. I, re- I took notes. And I said, uh, why, why yes? He said, because he comes on the radio station in Podo, and uh, I preached that sermon about three weeks ago. I said, whew, okay. I said, no, 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 I have, I have original stuff. I had a Bible. That's all I had. And so... And so I, so I was a little panicked because I just had a few hours to get ready for the next service. And so I, 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 I was ready to do it. But, but I knew that my preaching wasn't going to win the world. And so I said, hey, pastor, take me to the meanest, honoriest guy in the county. That if he got saved, everybody would know we was having revival. He said, you ain't ready. I said, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm ready. He said, you ain't ready. So the next day, we made some visits. And the next day, we made some visits. And I kept telling him, Preacher, take me to the meanest, honorest guy in the whole county. If he got saved, everybody know we, we were having a revival. He said, you're not ready. We visited every old lady with a corn on their toe. We, we prayed over arthritis. We prayed over all kinds of ailments. I mean, I thought I was on a Wednesday night prayer meeting. I mean, we prayed over everything, every, every ailment known to man. But, but we weren't winning anybody to Jesus. I said, finally, I said, Preacher, take me. To the meanest honest guy. He takes me in. We go through Hodges into Hevener. We go into Hevener. Anybody been to Hevener? I'll tell you, you, you'll know what I'm talking about. You go, you go into town by crossing over the railroad tracks. You go to the first main road, you turn back to the right. At the end of that road, there's a gas station there. They had this big bell speaker playing the most ungodly country music I'd ever heard in my life. Now, I listen to country music sometimes, but this was that ungodly stuff, you know, where somebody's mother was with their sister's brother. I mean, it was just horrible. And so, and so it was just blaring, and we get out, and, and this guy goes, what you need, preacher? He said, there's cars everywhere. What you need, preacher? He said, I'm looking for Mr. Turner. He said, he's around at the shop. So we get back in the car, and now I'm starting to doubt that I'm ready. Not positive, but I'm starting to doubt, John, that I, that I was really ready. We go in to the, sh- and we get there, there's cars everywhere. They got another speaker. It's blowing that same stuff. We pull up, and we get out of the car, and this dude, I mean, he's probably about like this, and about like this, and solid as a rock, and he had something hanging out of the side of his mouth that probably five years earlier started out as a cigar. I don't know. It was, it was the nastiest thing I'd ever seen in my life, hanging out of somebody's mouth. And he comes walking up, and he goes, he goes, well, blankety-blank-blank, preacher, what, what in the blankety-blank-blank are you doing here? And I'm thinking, I'd never heard anybody say that to a preacher before. And I'm just standing there in a total amazement. And he said, and the preacher, being the godly wise man that he was, said this. He said, Mr. Turner, this is Alan Quigley. He's preaching a revival for us. And he's been wanting to meet you all week. He has something he wants to tell you. I said, no, I don't. <laughs> Forgot what it was. I went through evangelism explosion, plan of salvation, 
And I said, Mr. Turner, and by the way, while I'm doing this, that music is playing, but I've never before nor since had actual hecklers, people talking and yelling foul things from that garage as I was talking to the preacher, as, as, I, as I talked to Mr. Turner. And when I asked Mr. Turner, is there anything like this ever happened before in your life? He said, no. I said, would you like to give your life to Jesus Christ? He said, he said yes, son, I would. Knowing that he totally misunderstood everything that I said because surely he couldn't have understood that. I went through it again. And this time when I said, Mr. Turner, would you like to give your life to Jesus Christ? Right there, he fell knee first, just like this. I can't do it, but he did. He fell on his knees and he went down like this and buried his face in his hands. And tears started pouring out onto the pavement. And I got down and I led him in a sinner's prayer, and he called upon Jesus to forgive him of his sin. I'm going to tell you, the music was still playing, but everybody else was dead silent. He said he would come to church that night. Man, you know what you do when you have this, the most honorary guy in the whole county that got saved coming to church? You get up and you say, Jesus saves, let's have an invitation. And that's, all, that's about what I had planned. I bet you all wish I had that sermon still, but... <laughs> But he, but he came. He, no, he didn't come. And, and, and I thought, man, he made a fool of us. I was supposed to stay the night, but I drove back to Oklahoma City that night thinking the whole way, that man, just, that man just played us. The next year, I went to be the youth minister for that guy in Tahlequah. He had moved to Tahlequah. And he asked me to, in the middle of the summer to go and see Mr. Turner. And I had never been on staff before, and I didn't realize that staff members really don't have to do what the preacher said. And so, so I, I started, and I wasn't happy about it. And I got there, the gas station was closed. Didn't even exist. Went around to the shop. This is one year later. Went around to the shop. And it still had that, that speaker out there, but instead of playing that Country music, it had the Christian station from Poto playing just as loud. There was one car, one little shriveled up guy working on it. I get out of the car, I'm walking up. Mr. Turner sees me, he comes running out. He goes, oh, Alan Quigley, I'm so glad that you're here. I've been wanting to talk to you ever since that night. And I said, what is going on? He said, well, you know, then I ran the wrecker, and we had a bad accident, and I had to go work that wrecker, that wreck. But that next Sunday morning, my wife and I got up, and we went to First Baptist Church in Hevener. And I told them that I prayed and asked Jesus Christ to come into my life. And I told them that I got saved. And I told them I wanted to be baptized, and they baptized me that night. I told them my wife wanted to know what I had done because my life was so different. And she did the same thing that night, and we both got baptized together that very night. He said, it was, it was wonderful. We joined the church. We've been growing in the church. He said, you're not going to believe this, but they have already made me a deacon. I said, now, Mr. Turner, that's the only thing in this whole story that I understand. Because in a Baptist church, if you're a man and you've only been married one time and you come three weeks in a row, they'll make you a Baptist deacon. That ain't a very high qualification. And so, so Mr. Turner got saved. The meanest honor. But you know what I thought? I thought about how many Baptists had taken their car there and never told him about Jesus because they thought he was too far gone, that he was the meanest, honoriest guy. 
But when you're confronted with the gospel, God will do miraculous things. You know how miraculous it is? I was preaching at Wilbur, at Red Oak. It was at Red Oak. And this 80-year-old man come walking up to me. He said, Mr. Turner was my uncle. Mr. Turner and his wife were the first believers in our family. We, we don't know of another, another person in our family. But he led his brothers and sisters-in-laws to faith in Christ. Who led us children to faith in Christ. He has a grandson at OBU. This was several years ago. He's, he's out now. Studying to be a minister of the gospel. Huh. Huh. I wonder who the meanest, honorist guy in your life might be. I wonder if you've decided for them that they're going to go to hell and that they're not going to respond to the gospel. Or have you decided that you're going to go? You're going to go because Jesus can make the difference. Let's stand to our feet. Father, as we come to this time of, of reflection upon your word, as believers, Father, we've been challenged to be obedient, to go in the name of Jesus to a lost and dying world. And God, we hear your call. And we, in this room, are at various stages of that. Some are faithful to do it, some have never done it. But God, I pray that you will move us into obedience. And hear our prayers. And Father, there may be some who are here who have never called upon you for salvation. And God, you have been at work in their life for a very long time, bringing them to this very moment. God, I pray that they would come and let me have the opportunity from your word to show them how they can believe upon you and have their lives changed and the course of their family's lives changed just as you did for Mr. Turner. Now, Father, as we're standing in your presence, help us to be obedient to the word that we have received from you today. In Christ's name I pray, amen. As God's Spirit has spoken, you come.